By the time Coy Mathis was four years old, he knew one thing was for sure, that he wasn't a boy. That's the opening statement from a Rolling Stone article in 2013 about a kid in Colorado who was confused, not confused, excuse me, convinced that his physical body didn't match his true identity. His parents were confused at first, but over time they accepted Coy's professed gender. Soon, Coy's closet was filled with pink dresses and his parents got involved in a legal battle over Coy's access to the girls' restroom at school. And stories like this are becoming commonplace now. And in fact, you're just like, man, that's really old news. We probably have, I I mean, there's probably one in our, you know, within a 20-mile radius of where we are about some legal battle, or or likely not even a battle, just an assumed uh, of something like that. Uh, Some of you here this morning may be witnessing this firsthand, where you live and work or where your kids go to school. In fact, there are an estimated 700,000 people in the U.S. who identify as transgender. That is, they claim a gender identity different from the sex they were assigned at birth. Transgenderism in recent years has permeated the news in debates about bathroom bills, workplace policies, school locker rooms. But in all the flurry of media, we cannot forget that this is ultimately about real people created in God's image. Just like Coy Mathis. So the question is today, twofold. What does the Bible have to say to those who feel like exiles in their own bodies? And then number two, how do we as believers love our kids well in this world of gender confusion? So that's what I want to talk about this morning. And first, we're going to think a little bit about the Bible's teaching on gender and on the human body. And some of you here, in fact, I would say most of you here probably instinctually just say... I understand that there are two genders and two genders only, but the trouble is it's just an instinct. Now, that instinct, I would argue, is informed by a biblical worldview. But you need more than an instinct. You need more than a gut. You need to be informed by the Bible and be able to articulate that because you need to be able to shepherd and disciple your children because they're being uh, overwhelmed with a different narrative. And so you need to be able to say more than just a gut reaction or a, you know, hey, we're normal people and and, and there's just boys and girls. You need to be able to say much more than that. You need to respond with clarity and with conviction and with wisdom. And you need to be able to teach your children the biblical worldview, the one that informs your instinct. Okay? So so we're going to take time about basic things, but don't think, I know this stuff. Think, I need to understand these very, very, these very, very foundational priorities so that I can communicate them to my kids first and foremost because we're thinking about this in relation to parenting. But then second of all, as I live and move and have my being in a secular world and I want to be what? Salt and light, a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so don't just think, as I do sometimes whenever I'm reading something, oh, I know this, moving on, right? Don't think that as we're covering these basic things. Think about this in relation to being able to understand and articulate in view of your children and others. All right. So we're going to think about the Bible's teaching on gender in the human body, and then we're going to consider some implications uh, for those we know, uh, specifically our kids, how can we love them well? Um, another note as we begin today, 
We are not talking primarily about homosexuality here, though that is a related issue. There are several biblical texts that speak directly to the sinfulness of homosexual acts that we won't cover this morning. That could be a whole different class. We're going to focus more narrowly on the question of gender identity, what it means to be created male or female, and how it could be that some people feel their body not to be a gift, but instead to be a prison, and how all of us as sinful people can find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I already feel like I'm preaching this morning. Get ready. All right. Number one, let's start with the biblical theology of gender and of the human body. Let's start at the very beginning with this fundamental biblical truth. God created men and women in his own image. We read in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. We should unashamedly, unabashedly recognize the biological difference between men and women as a wonderful part of our creator's design. With sexually differentiated bodies, God chose to exhibit his image in men and women and doing so in complementary different ways. In the goodness of God's design, Genesis 2.25 describes how Adam and Eve were fully at home with God, fully at home with one another, while also being perfectly comfortable in their God-given, gendered bodies. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So just think about this. Think about the obvious. There was no gender dysphoria. There was no internal conflict. There was no discontentment. There was no rebellion with who God made them to be. It's important to acknowledge that human sexuality, being male and female, is an objective, binary. Do you have donuts for us? Fantastic. Everybody's like, whoa, that's going to be in the recording. It sure is. We've got donuts this morning, people. I appreciate that. The deacons keep putting like chamomile tea out for Sunday morning. Come on, people. We can't go to sleep. Uh, all right. So feel free to get yourself donuts, but focus. Stay focused with me. All right. So, all right, here we go. Back it up and, and stick with me here. Uh, stick with me here. You're like, you're the one who's going off like a dog seeing a, you know, a rabbit. Yes, I am. It's important to recognize that human sexuality, being male or female, is an objective, biological, binary trait determined for each person by God himself. What David says in Psalm 139 is true of everyone. You formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So... How might we summarize the Christian view of gender? Well, our gender isn't just psychological. Isn't, our gender isn't just 
psychological. Our gender includes our physical body. It certainly involves our body, our physical sex. That's partly how I'm going to use the term gender, to refer to the fact that you are created male or female, including your physical body. As a man or a woman with hormones, sex chromosomes, with flesh and bones, you embody the image of God on earth. That is part of gender, your physical body. It also includes, though, your God-given dispositions and inclinations. Welcome, late ones. It's wonderful to have you. All right. You're like, man, you're shaming people this morning. Yes, I am. It's okay. It's all right. God-given dispositions and inclinations. Uh, In addition to our fundamental physical differences, God has also given men and women distinct dispositions and inclinations. There is such a thing as masculinity and femininity as is taught in Genesis 2 through 3 and how these proclivities become more formalized through roles in the home, Ephesians chapter 5, and in the church, 1 Timothy 2 through 3. So there's physical body, there's God-given dispositions and inclinations, and then there's cultural expressions. So thirdly, The biblical view recognizes that there are also cultural expressions of gender that are actually value neutral and those can change from era to era. So, for example, men in the Enlightenment era in France wore makeup and wigs, okay? And it was assumed That men in the Enlightenment era in France wore makeup and wigs. Today, men do not do that. Clothes, hairstyles, colors. The Bible doesn't spell out what men or women should wear. Though it is significant to note that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does expect men and women to present themselves as men and women through their appearance in ways that make sense to their particular Culture. Does that make sense? So some expressions of biblical masculinity and femininity are value neutral. They change across time. Okay? Men in Enlightenment France wore wigs and tights. They don't now. But the Bible does assume that in whatever culture you are in, you are going to present yourself to others around you in a way that makes sense of the gender that you, in fact, are. Does that make sense? So you're going to dress as a man in the culture that you are in. You're going to dress as a woman in the culture that you are in. So, yes, there are some cultural expressions of gender that vary across time, and they aren't core to being a man or a woman, but that doesn't mean that gender is only cultural. The Bible says gender fundamentally is something you are, not just the way you dress or behave. So gender, I'm saying, has three aspects. One, physical. Two, God-given dispositions and inclinations. Three, cultural expressions. Now, I want to take just a second. I want to contrast that to the secular view. And the secular view is becoming more prominent today. In fact, I would say it's, it's overwhelmingly prominent today. In fact, I would say it's coming like Niagara Falls over us today with incredible power and force and implications that seem hard to escape. The secular view concerning gender is that sex is only 
biological. You either have a male or you either have male or female chromosomes, anatomy, and hormones. That's sex. Gender, on the other hand, is only psychological. It pertains to your inner sense of identity, and it is socially defined, and so it includes things like behavior, appearance, clothing, roles, etc. Many theorists argue that there's no necessary correlation between your physical sex and your gender. Does everybody get that? So the, the world is saying there is no correlation necessarily between your biological sex okay, and your gender. You can be a male or a female physically, biologically, but actually not be a male or female as it relates to your gender because your biology is not necessarily your identity as a male or a female. Does everybody understand that is what the world is saying? This is a yes. I appreciate that. I know it's early. There are donuts. Um, In this, yes, Eric. Would you also say that Yes. Yes, the culture would say, I would argue, that the prevailing intellectual thinking out there is that your is that your gender identity, your inner psychological self, very much trumps your bio, biological self. Okay. Now, in this view, the, the the culture diverges from the biblical view. Okay. You need to know this is not the biblical view. And for those of you who came in just a little bit late, I, I just, I actually just want to speak a word to you real quick. We're talking about really basic things that you probably think, I already understand these things. You understand these things likely in an instinctual way, in a gut response way. Yeah, of course, there's only boys and girls. Uh, but that's because you're being informed by a biblical worldview, but you may not be able to articulate or understand why you have that instinct. Like we understand instinctually that it's wrong to throw a kitten in the wood chipper. Okay, but why? But why? It's because we are actually called to care for creation. Okay, so we can't just use our authority over creation in some destructive way like that. That's the theological grounding behind that. Okay, even if it's a stray kitty. Um, and so, likewise, when it comes to your, when it comes to thinking there are only boys and girls, you need to be able to understand why you have that instinctual reaction. And you need to be able to articulate it for your benefit in the workplace and in the world, and especially as we think about this right here, to be able to teach your kids. Because your kids are getting sold a bill of goods that is entirely opposite to this. And if you don't understand this, and if you can't explain it, and if you can't display it, and if you can't be excited about it, you are you are way behind the eight ball as it relates to being able to win your kids to a sane and happy view of themselves. All right? So that's why we're talking about this. If you came in late and you think, I already know this, this isn't all that important, I'm going to wait till he gets to the practical stuff. No, 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 this is really important. You need to listen. All right. So here's how an article in Slate put it. Gender is a kind of performance, something we actively create from the limited cultural materials we encounter. And the writer asserted that babies and toddlers are genderless. This view makes gender radically subjective, that known only to a person, to that person, in fact. 
And this view opens up the possibility of having the wrong body for one's true gender. Others report that a gender identity that doesn't correspond to ma- others report that gender identity that doesn't consp- correspond to masculine or feminine at all, but is somewhere in between the two. All of this can be summed up with a couple of popular slogans, such as, quote, anatomy isn't destiny. Whoever is, has anybody heard that? Okay, you've heard it. Anatomy isn't destiny. Or, here's another way it was put, sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with, and gender identity determines who you want to go to bed as. Make sense? Sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with, and gender identity determines who you want to go to bed as. So, this way of thinking asserts that your sex, your sexual orientation, whom you're attracted to, and your gender identity, who you understand yourself to be, are all separate and not necessarily correlated. Now, even though it might be scandalous to say this, being a Christian means you need to say really, really, really bold and incredible things like the sky is blue, okay? Uh, We must be clear. The Bible rejects this understanding. The Bible absolutely rejects this understanding of gender. Our gender being created, either male or female, and being a man or a woman is a gift from God and a holistic gift, and it includes our body, our sense of identity, and our dispositions and roles to which God calls us, okay? Now, all of this leads to a natural question, though. Why is it that some people seem to experience distress or inner conflict about their gender, okay? Well, that brings us to a second point. That's this. The fall has distorted us in body and in mind. In Genesis 3, because of Adam and Eve's sin, God curses the ground and death enters the world. Therefore, the fall, mankind's rebellion against God, is at the root of every physical and spiritual ailment that afflicts humanity. So first, let's talk about how it affects our bodies. We know that sickness and death are the result of the curse. In conversations about sexuality and gender, sometimes the question gets raised about individuals that have ambiguous or intersex anatomy. That means both male and female characteristics. Statistics tell us that about 1 in 1,500 children may be born with some rare disorder of sex development or intersex trait. The Christian can reply to this, that this is a rare and challenging condition like other physical and genetic disorders, and this stems ultimately from the fall. Therefore, doctors and pastors must apply wisdom in counseling such individuals, showing love and care for those created in the image of God. However, when we are talking about transgenderism specifically, we are not talking about ambiguous anatomy. Anatomy, excuse me. We're talking about someone who was clearly born male or female and yet doesn't feel that way on the inside. This is where the debate usually comes in. Amen? Right? This is where it comes in. Okay. As Christians, that's why we've got to remember that the fall affects not only our bodies, but our inner person too. What the Bible calls the heart, right? 
the inner person. Romans 1.18 says that men and women, what do they do? Suppress the truth about God. And then in verse 21, men and women did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became foolish in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1 and Romans 8 teach us that nature as we experience it is not nature as God intended it. This is actually really important. Romans 1 and Romans 8 teach us that nature as we experience it (laughs) is not nature as God intended it. Therefore, just because something feels or seems natural to us in our fallen world doesn't mean it's right. Okay, just because something feels natural doesn't mean it's right. In fact, the fall has distorted our ability to perceive correctly, including our self-perception, right? We can't necessarily know if we're thinking about ourselves right. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Outside of Christ, all of us view ourselves inaccurately in various ways. The proverb says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death, Proverbs 14, 12. So our hearts aren't infallible, and we've got to listen to God to find out who he's created us to be. And while I can't presume to understand everything going on in the mind of someone who identifies as transgender... There is clear biblical precedent for having a deep confusion in one's heart about one's own identity. And since we all have distorted views of ourselves in various ways, this means that we should be able to respond with patience and gentleness to those experiencing tension about their gender. We also know that by God's grace and power, people can really change. Through a greater knowledge of God and his word, we can grow in having a more accurate understanding of ourselves. I just want to say that twice because that's Captain Obvious, but it's really important. Through a greater knowledge of God and his word, we can grow in having a more accurate understanding of ourselves. That's in every way, by the way, not just in relation to this transgender stuff. So all of us who are trusting in Christ can attest to this reality, right? Through God's word, we continue to understand ourselves more accurately and more truly. And and we don't allow ourselves to be defined by our intuitions, but instead by God's word. On the other hand, we have got to be clear that rejecting one's God-given gender is sin. And sin always has certain consequences. Like all sin, it is going to lead to pain, despair, and ultimately hell. To reject your God-given sex is to reject God's lordship as creator over your life. So I want you to hear me say that very clearly. To reject your God-given sex is to reject God's lordship over your life, okay? We have to resist the world's logic, which is, how can something be wicked if no one else seems to get hurt? So, brothers and sisters, disobeying God's law is always evil, okay? So transgender ideology teaches us to think of our bodies as a blank canvas. Do with it what you will. But the Bible's teaching on the creation and fall shows that we should see our bodies not as a blank canvas, but as a flawed masterpiece. 
I want you to think about your favorite painting and I want you to imagine that it had become broken or distorted. Would you erase the Mona Lisa and turn it into a sunset? Would you erase the Mona Lisa and recreate it as you see fit? You're like, I don't know what the Mona Lisa is. That's okay. Imagine something else. Um, no, you would try to understand the artist's original creation and you would seek to restore it. To live with the grain of how the designer had created it to be and how he creates us to be. So, and I would also say the reason why there's increasing, this is very, 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 very simple. The reason why there is, is an, as, is even more of a flood of transgender ideology and people becoming transgender now, the reason why there's more and more and more and more and more of it is simply because it's culturally acceptable and cool. So now kids think, well, I mean, I don't feel quite as manly as as the Avenger movies. I guess I'm not a boy. Um, and so I think maybe I'm going to start talking about this. And I think maybe maybe I'm more of a girl. Or maybe I'm more of an in-between. It's just because the common grace boundaries have totally disappeared. That's why you're seeing a flood of it. It's very, very simple as to why. Okay? And what's needed in the stem of that is for Christians and their families to speak Truth, to model truth, we're going to get to what Christians should do in just a minute. But thats it's very simple as to why you're seeing like a flood of transgender ideology. It's because it's being heralded as the greatest thing ever. So kids see that, and they're like, oh, okay. And who wasn't confused about who they were when you were going through puberty? Holy smokes, can you, do, do any of you remember what it was like to be going through puberty? I mean, it's like crazy. That's when you need normal people telling you truths. This is not right. This is right. This is not who you are. This is who you are. I know you feel weird, honey. But this is this is the truth. Okay? Like that's what's needed, parents. Okay? Alright. But what's our hope as we consider this? Simply this. Jesus came and took on human flesh. He lived as a man, fully embodied, fully human. He came to redeem sinners from all the effects of the fall no matter what type of fallen self-perception has defined us. And let's not forget that Jesus was known as the friend of prostitutes and sinners. He came not only for the healthy, but for the sick. For those who, like all of us, had rejected God in outwardly obvious ways. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures... Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Jesus, the perfect man, came to die in our place, came to give us new life and forgiveness to all who repent and believe in the gospel. And then He rose from the grave, which lets us know it's all true. And that actually leads us to one more theological point. Number, ne- number the next one. The resurrection affirms the goodness of the gendered body. The gospel boldly declares that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. In his risen body, he was still a man. And all men and women who are united to him by faith will rise bodily too. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the image of a seed being buried in the ground, and when rising up, it becomes a glorious plant. 
In other words, although our resurrection body will be unimaginably better than our current body, there will also be continuity between our identity here and in the new creation to come. God created us male and female in his image before the fall, and we will image him perfectly in heaven. This means, in some sense, we will still have our God-given gender in our resurrected bodies. We will forever be men or women to the glory of God, not anything in between. Okay? Why do I say this? Some of you have a quizzical look upon your face. Why do I say this? Because in contrast to that teaching, a key pillar of transgender thought is that one's internal sense of gender identity trumps their physical anatomy. It is classic mind over matter like Greek Gnosticism of old. The person is reduced to two components, the psychological identity and physical sex, and the psychological component is given greater priority to Eric's question. And when you think about it, People who do this are in some sense trying to play God, exercising sovereignty over their own existence. But Christianity says that what we need to do is not pit soul against the body in this way. God created us as united beings, body and soul, and the resurrection of Jesus is God's signature endorsing the fact that he sees the body as male or female. As a core part of humanity, both now and in the world to come. Therefore, our bodies are not an accessory. Therefore, our bodies are not just a housing chamber for the soul. Your body, male or female, is part of who you are, both in in time and in eternity. And we can have this hope. On the final day, this is encouraging. On the final day, no kid is going to experience into any sense of disconnect between his body and his true sense of identity. There will be no more confusion. There will be no more struggle. And the resurrection of Jesus helps us point our hope to that day. We are a resurrection people longing for the age to come. Man, this is good. Yes, Sonia? Maybe. Okay. Okay. Correct. Not jive with that. Oh well, there's always it's always a bit of a both and. I mean, so the way we experience things is not as as God intended it. We don't experience our world as God intended us to. But it's not as though there's no truth and no beauty and no glory in what we experience. Whatever is in keeping with the Word of God is what God intended us to experience. So I was just talking with a non-Christian the other day over lunch, and I was saying, listen, I think Christianity has the best evidence for both, has the best answer for both the wonder and the glory and the excellency we see in the world and the trash we see in the world. The reason why we are incredible as humans, the reason why we can create art, invent, have vaccines that whack, that knock out polio and all this stuff, The reason why we can do that is because we're created in the image of God. He's creative. He's intelligent. He designs. So we do that. It's incredible. The reason why we are also at times absolutely wicked and we do horrific and unbelievable things is because of the fall, because of sin, because we're not quite right. So when I say what we experience in nature isn't what God intended it to be, I don't mean we experience nothing of what God intended us to experience. I mean it's all a bit off. 
and what's off and what's on has to be defined by God's word. Oh yeah, everything that testifies of the truth, we will see in its fullness in heaven. Um, we will see in its fullness and in its glory. I mean, everything, everything good here, by the way, guys, let this encourage you. Everything good here, everything glorious here, everything that makes you say, man, God is good. Which you, you say that all the time as a Christian, uh, when you got your right mind about you. Every, all of those things are going to be heightened times 45 in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be like, woo, yeah, you know? So sometimes when I'm like flying down a, 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 a face on J-Peak uh, or on Smugs, and, and I'm not with my wife because she would be nervous about how fast I'm going. But, but when I'm doing that, I am absolutely loving every moment of life as I'm flying down that slope. Like that sense of excitement and euphoria is going to be there in heaven times 45. I, I can't wait for that. And I'm not going to have to wear a helmet. Um, so, yes. So, you talk about the separation that the culture tries to make between the physical and the uh, internal or whatever. Um, why does that then, why is there also an impulse to change the physical to match the internal if we're okay with the fact that they're not connected and they're unrelated. Does that make sense? Because I think we want to play God and we want to define our own reality. And so we want to make whatever seems incongruous to what we feel, we want to force it into 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 alignment with what we feel. Because we're taught that what we feel and what we think must be right. Because as Carl Truman argues in his book um, recently, the 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 the, tr- the rise and, and the rise and triumph of the modern self, our understanding of who we understand ourselves to be, trumps every other form of reality, truth, claim, or anything. The internal is what must be given priority over all else. Elisa, they actually are trying to align sex with gender. Okay. Yeah, they are trying to align. There you go. And that's speaking of. So, by the way, would you just be praying for Elisa? Elisa is is in a medical practice, and she's often working with young ones, and uh, and and she is seeing the brunt of all of this, and she's seeing the damage that it's doing to young ones, and it's actually even just personally difficult for her. Can't you just imagine that? So, could you be praying for Elisa? Uh, in in her medical practice and in she's as she's dealing with these things these, are very, these things are very hard so i want to talk for a second about how we love our kids well in a gender confused world and then maybe we'll have some time for questions you've already had some questions which is good number one be a normal christian <laughs> i'm serious be a normal christian at home dad Seek to live out your role as protector, provider, spiritual leader. Mom, seek to live out your role as helper, supporter. Unashamedly orient your life towards your family. And, and so, so modeling, right? Be a normal Christian as it relates to what you model in your home. Be a normal Christian as it relates to instruction in your home. Do you read the Bible in your home? You should. And as you do, you will be inoculating your children against the lies of the world that they were, that they are being taught elsewhere. So, family worship, read your Bible often. So, at home, be a normal Christian. At church, 
okay? The normal Christian life is oriented around the local church. And the benefit and blessing of that is that your kids are going to be filled with biblical content, Bible instruction. And they're going to be filled with biblical models, other men and other women, other boys, other girls who are embracing and celebrating and living the Bible's teaching on gender. These things are going to help inoculate your kid against the world and his lies. They're going to create a picture, a positive picture in his or her mind concerning what the Bible says, which is going to be a stark contrast to what they're seeing at elementary school. Okay? Were you going to say something? It shows our kids multiple different versions of, of godly manhood and godly womanhood. Yes. Yeah, so they, if you're a dad and your boy experiences his manhood slightly differently than you, there's other people. He doesn't have to say, well, I must not be a man because I don't do it like dad does. It. Yes. But he can, you can look and point to other men who are constituted slightly differently than you but are still living out godly masculinity. Same for girls. So when I say be a normal Christian, uh, I mean live how the Bible tells you to live, husbands, wives, and then center your lives around the church, which is going to fill your kids with content. And and you should be filling your kids with content in just family worship and the songs that you sing and the things that you talk about over the dinner table and all of this stuff. It's filled with a biblical normal worldview. Just orient yourself towards the things of God and his word at home and then center your life around the church. Don't make it like something you do every now and again, but continue to center yourself around it, develop relationships there because they're going to get instruction, very good instruction. They're going to be filled with the Bible here and they're going to see, they're going to see, they're going to see biblical manhood and womanhood modeled and embraced and lived out and walked out. And they're going to see the goodness of that, the joy of that, the sanity of that. Okay. Okay. That's number one. Number two, and this is connected to the previous point, but it's slightly different. Celebrate God's good design. Be a normal Christian, but celebrate that. Talk about how awesome it is that God designed us the way he designed us. Celebrate examples of biblical masculinity and femininity when you see it in the church, when you actually see it, maybe if you watch movies together as a family, right? Um, read books together, celebrate, celebrate when you see biblical examples of masculinity and femininity, celebrate, talk about how good it is, don't be ashamed about how God designed us, and talk about how God's ways are best. Talk about how God's ways are best. So celebrate God's design. Number three, point out lies in the culture. So if you're watching TV or you're reading something and transgender ideology is being pushed and and wiggled in there, ask your kids to identify what's going on. Help them become aware that the world is on a march to normalize the secular understanding of gender, teach them to see it, and teach them to actively resist it. Okay? This is not something that's unique to transgender ideology, but the secular worldview wants to infiltrate the normal universe with the secular worldview, okay? So it pushes it downstream into all aspects of media. TV shows, advertisements during the football game, everything, right? So when you see 
evidence of the secular world where you're being pushed, whether you're reading a book, whether you're watching a movie, whether you're watching TV shows, pause, stop. Help them to identify the lie that's being pushed there, okay? Don't just think, oh, I wish they hadn't seen that. No, stop. Identify it. Help them to see the world's pushing its view. Help them to identify that and then help them to actively resist it, okay? Teach them that they should actively resist it. Uh, number one, you you do, parents, you just have to be engaged in school at this point. If your kids go to just public school, um, you got to be engaged. Health class, you need to be asking the awkward questions. Are they going to teach about gender gender ideology and gender identity? I would encourage you exempt your kids from that class. If there are special programs, speakers, same idea. You need to be asking what's going on there. And if they're teaching uh, things about gender ideology, I would say exempt your kids from those things. Don't be shy. I would even get into reading, find out what books they're being asked to read in class, fiction or otherwise. If that's pushing a transgender ideology, ask for a different book. Don't be shy about those things. Okay? Jenna I know. How do we approach our, our like, I, I can't, we kind of started this conversation where, like, you're going to hear things at school that don't align with the Bible, but just, like, your teacher's still in authority. Like, how do we kind of jive that with, like, but you're going to hear things that are actually wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Not getting it into every subject. So like, that's what this, like, Act 1 that came down was, it's, it's not just like, oh, I'm, cause I think parents would be like, well, I'm exempting my kid from health class. But yeah, they're, yeah. It, it's like weaved into everything. So, I mean, it's either you just don't send your kid to school. Yeah, you, you may need to have a very honest conversation with teachers at the beginning of the year. And you may need to just out yourself right up front and just say, hey, listen, I'm a Christian. So just part of that reality is that I believe that God made just boys and girls. So I'm just going to ask you for the courtesy as their mom or their dad. That if, if you're going to be assigning a book or if there's going to be a class that's going to be kind of weaving in a, a view of, of gender that's different than that, that you let me know and that I have the option to just have my child do something different. There's nothing disrespectful about that. Um, and you can't be afraid to be weird. Uh, Yeah. Inclusiveness. Yeah. You need to grab onto that as a believer and yeah. say, this is our family belief. Just like you make allowances for the Muslim kid during holiday celebrations, I'm asking you to make allowances for my child and our belief system. Excellent. And, and I would, if, if I were you, I would make that more between you and the teacher and yes. not try to put pressure on, not that you would, but. It's easy to kind of put pressure on your kids, like, well, why didn't you tell me that they were, they don't know. So I, I think, especially when they're small, it's important to have a relationship with that teacher. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. already been in contact about other things and been supportive and kind and all that kind of stuff. Then when you kind of connect with them on that, they're going to be like, oh, this is a good mom. I understand. I'm going to try to work with her. Good dad. Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing Heather wants to say something, and we're we're almost out of time. We actually are out of time. You want to say okay. something? Okay. Uh, were you going to say something? Go ahead. It's like in the workplace, because I know there's a lot of like trainings coming down about this. I know for Kevin, like there's all kinds of training on this all the time, and if he refers to the inmates other than he, 
if you get fired now. So like, what does that look like in the workplace when you're forced all this training and you're forced to have to talk to everybody in a certain way? That is a great question. It's a larger conversation than than two minutes. Um, but I think a lot of things depend on how things are worded. And I think in one sense, you can you can get away with a lot of things if you actually just ask for permission to call someone by their last name. Okay, and there are actually court battles that are being fought and and being won. Teachers in a secular um, academy setting refusing to call someone uh, her if it's a him, but saying, "May I may I call you by your last name? Uh, refer to you by your last by your first and last name." Uh, and the courts are actually deciding yes, that person has the right to do that um, because for freedom of conscience' sake. We as Christians do believe it's wrong to, you know, call someone a, a, to, in our conscience to call someone a girl who's not a girl. Um, that's, yeah, ooh. Um, so, but that's a, a greater conversation. Let's let's have it offline and probably talk about it more as well with the whole church at some point as well. We're out of time, man. Good stuff. I would also say be engaged with your kids. Uh, so talk to them about these things. This should be something that is not an off-limits topic of conversation. And then ask for help from brothers and sisters at church. So if you have questions about how to navigate conversations with your kids, ask for help from other Christians at church that you know and trust, from pastoral staff, and from elders. Let me close this in prayer. Thank God, thank you for your good design and how good it is for us. Help us to embrace it, live it, and uh, rejoice in it, regardless of the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.